0: All right, church, if you have your copy of God's word, and I hope you do, we are back in Hebrews this week after a one week intermission last week in which Pastor Ethan uh, helped us out from Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and and really showed us uh, a parable that kind of parallels what's going on in the book of Hebrews when we uh, are in chapter 5 through the end of today. We find ourselves in this section of warning. and then affirmation and so we've been through the warning that began back in verse 11 of chapter 5 and continued all the way down through verse 8 of chapter 6 and then we turn the corner in verse 9 today from warning to assurance and god uses both to spur us on in the in our walk with christ but if eternity is on the line we need to know not just the risks of falling away from Jesus, we also need to know what it looks like to win. We know what it, need to know what it looks like to be assured. I'm an upward basketball coach, and we have not won yet this year. I hope at some point that our team gets to learn not only what it's like to lose, but they get to know what it's like to win. It's, it's good to have both experiences and in, the, in our walk with Christ, we, we have been warned about the dangers of treating Jesus uh, with contempt or not taking him seriously, and now we are going to be affirmed, all right? Well, if you've been warned and that's shaking you up a little bit, well, where then does my confidence come from? And so this morning, I want to preach to you on the subject of being convinced of better things, convinced of better things. Verse 9 Of chapter 6 in Hebrews, all the way through the end of the chapter, hear now the word of God. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to The saints, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish. dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Did you bow with me? God in heaven, thank you that you not only give us warnings about the dangers of falling away, but you give us how it is that we can live lives that that are lives that are convinced that we belong to you, lives that are assured, lives that are full of your purpose and your hope. God, we pray that we would see better today how to flee the world and cling to the hope that you have for us, seated in the heavens. His name is Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. So this morning, we've read in verse 9. I'm going to give you the, what I call the DJPV. That's the Daniel James Palmer version of verse 9. My my translation of this verse is this. If we are speaking like this. That's the first thing he says. In in the translation I read, it puts it at the end, but he acknowledges, look, I've been really harsh. I've been giving you some severe warnings. If we are speaking like this, beloved, we are convinced or persuaded of better things in your case. Remember last 2 weeks ago, he's talking about those who fell away, but in your case, we're convinced of better things, things that are genuinely connected to salvation. And then in verses 10 through 20, he describes for us the convinced life or the assured life. He tells us why he's convinced of better things for his readers. And if those are the things that lead him to being convinced that they are a part of the family of God, then we can learn from those things as well. We have a roadmap, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 6, 10 through 20, for living with confidence that we truly belong to Christ. So this morning we see in verses 9 through 20 these things. To be convinced or to live convinced that we will inherit God's salvation, we must serve and love one another for the sake of God's name. We must serve and love one another for the sake of God's name. Secondly, we must imitate the faith and the patience of the saints who've trusted God, and in particular those who've, who've come before us. And thirdly, we must run or flee self-reliance and rely upon the promise of God fulfilled in Christ, our forever high priest. As a quick aside, I just want you to know I'm grateful. I'm, I'm very grateful for this passage of Scripture on the heels of a whole bunch of warnings. The warnings are tough. And I'm so glad to have a passage that's a little more, well, encouraging. Right? The warnings encourage us, but, but now we're talking about assurance. And it's good to live persuaded of something or convinced of something. God wants you to be persuaded or convinced or assured that you belong to Christ so that you can be freed to live in a way that is consistent with your persuasion. When you're convinced of something, it changes how you live, how you act. Some of you are Redskins fans, and you are convinced that next year is going to be better. So you're going to watch at least the next nine weeks next year. And then you'll probably turn it off once more and say, there's always next year. But you just keep coming back with the assurance that one day the Redskins will be worth something. Well, praise God, he's not the Washington Redskins. He's God. He's faithful and true and does not fail to keep his promise. And he wants us to know because he is God and he keeps his promises, we can live assured. And when we really know God, it manifests itself first in that we serve and love one another for the sake of God's name. In verse 9, we see that little word, that timely word, that beautiful word, beloved. Although I speak to you in this way, beloved. Beloved. Beloved by who? Who, who loves this church? Who loves these people? Who loves us? God loves them. He's saying, let me remind you of who you are in Christ. You're beloved by God, you know the self-giving, agape love of God. And when you know, when you really know the self-giving love of God, it changes you. It will not leave you the same. It leads you to move from trying to earn or deserve or to manipulate God's love. And instead, just love Him for what He's already given to us in Christ. As John says, we love because He first loved us real salvation true salvation brings to our hearts real love from god that leads to real love for god that is demonstrated and proven through work and love for the saints verse 10 verse 10 shows us that god sees the work the word literally means toil he sees the toil and the agape self-giving love that we have shown to the saints in the past And that we are still showing even now to the saints. Saved people, assured people love their local church. They love it. They would die for it. They love the saints. God sees the fruit of our lives and rewards it in eternity. He sees what you're doing and he knows that didn't come from you. He knows it comes from God. And some of you this morning might say, well... I still need to find a place of service. Did you know there's a sign-me-up card in the pew rack in front of you? And it's got a lot of ways that you can spend your life serving and loving the brethren. You might want to grab one of those and pray over it this week and bring it back and put it in the offering plate next week. You might want to hand it to an usher as you walk out the door. Now, let me be clear. Our works don't save us. But our works and our love do give evidence that we are truly Saved. James says it this way faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The New Testament is very clear. It is consistent in saying that a genuine love for God will always lead to a genuine love for the church. We are, of course, supposed to love our neighbor and love the lost, and the lost know that salvation is real by our love for one another. And the reason that many Christians struggle with their assurance of salvation is because they are not actively loving their church. As Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. You see, church, our witness in the world, our testimony out there, doesn't just come with words spoken as important as those words are. It also comes from our works and our love for one another that differentiates us from the world. Now, let's recall that Hebrews is written to the church facing intensifying persecution. So the church is tempted to abandon the priority of serving and loving the family of faith and to just back out and just do what's comfortable and easy for their family so in verse 11 hebrews says this show the same diligence do you see that in verse 11 keep it up and then look at what he says each one of you not just the pastors not just the deacons Not just the retirees who come to prayer meeting at 9 o'clock on Wednesday morning. Every single one of you show the same diligence. Diligence in our walk with Christ leads to assurance in our faith in Christ. When it gets hard to follow Jesus, assurance comes from maintaining our commitment to Him through serving and loving the saints. Every single one of us. Assurance is not found in loving the world. It's not found in loving what the world can give. It's not found in quitting on the community to which Christ is calling you when storms of life come or when life gets busy. It is found in diligence. The word diligence there means speed or earnestness. It's found in hastening to find a way to love and serve in the body of Christ. And it's, it's found in consistent work and love for the church, You know, revival in the church generally does not come through a crusade or a special speaker. It comes through spirit-given renewal and passion to work and love your local church. Notice the repetition of the word show in verse 10 and 11. The assured Christian will keep on showing or demonstrating what she has shown. As we grow in Christ, we will learn new ways to serve and love our brothers and sisters. And as we age, how we serve sometimes changes, right? Because our bodies wear out. So our service, a lot of times, you know, when I I go to the rest homes, the the way I think about Miss Elsie Moore, the way she's serving our church, is she's still faithful and keeping her eyes fixed on Jesus. She still prays for us. She's still serving the saints. But for as long as we have breath, assurance comes through our service. One writer said it this way, Faithful activity fuels our assurance. You see, church, the Holy Spirit of God uses our consistency in service and love to bring a supernatural joy to our hearts that confirms within us our union with Christ. Now, if loving and serving the church is drudgery to you, that's a problem. But if you, if you get a special joy When you are loving and serving the church, that's affirmation in your life that you belong to Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen King. Assurance does not just come through any old activity, by the way. It comes through activity done, do you see it in verse 10? Toward His name. Why do you do what you do? Makes all the difference. It's the difference between being a Pharisee and being a child of God. Doing works for recognition or to build our platform or our name is of no eternal value to us. People who live with assurance are working and loving for the glory of God. For the glory of His name and not our own. We know the works we do are in love and in love for God when we are like Jesus, when we're pleased to step down in service so others may be lifted up to know Him. Assurance comes from service and love, motivated not for a love of the limelight, but for a love of God's great name. Secondly, assurance, conviction, being convinced that we know God comes when we imitate the faith and the patience of other saints who've trusted God. The author says in verse 12 that we are to maintain diligence in work and love so we will not be sluggish. The word sluggish there is the exact same word all the way back in verse 11 of chapter 5 that's translated lazy or dull of hearing, sluggish of hearing. We will not have confidence, the confidence that Jesus desires for us to have in our walk with Him when we are self-focused and self-absorbed. The reason I want you to keep outwardly focused on loving the church and serving the church is because when you turn inward and make it all about me, you become sluggish in your Christian life. And some of you may not be assured this morning that you belong to Christ because you haven't found an outlet to go serve in Jesus' name. And you, you are desperately hungry to go find a way to serve and bless others. And so the Spirit can use that to launch you out In uh, doing the work of God for the love of His name. And the Spirit of God uses that to awaken you and take you out of sluggishness. Now I want you to catch something here. Sluggish in verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5 verse 11. Sluggish now in verse 12 of chapter 6. What in the world is going on here? Sluggish in hearing the word, sluggish in my work and love. Do you see the connection? Eagerness in hearing God's word fuels work and love for one another. Work and love that is genuinely motivated by love for God. Because you've been hearing about how beautiful and wonderful and marvelous and glorious God is. So when you're eager to hear the word, it wells up within you. The Spirit uses that to motivate you to work and love one another for the glory of God. And the Spirit works among us to keep us open to hearing and learning more about our great God. Get this, as we work and love for one another. They are reciprocal, they're mutually reinforcing. When we work and love in the body of Christ, it makes us open to hear the word of God. When we hear the word of God with open hearts, it makes us want to love and serve the body. So if you become lazy in hearing the word of God, you are going to wane in your gratitude for Christ and the proper motivation to serve. If you take away serving and working and loving in the community of saints then you will wane in your openness to hear the word of God. In the second half of verse 12, we are charged to imitate the faith and the patience of other saints because the reward of eternal life only belongs to those who stay in the race. Verse 12, faith is more than agreeing with a set of facts. You've certainly heard the illustration that's often given at student camps I could set a chair right here, and I could say, I could tell you that I believe that chair is going to hold my weight, but I don't actually believe that chair is going to hold my weight until I sit down in it, and I place my weight in it. I could tell you, oh, I believe it's going to hold me, but until I actually take the action of sitting down, I have not believed. Faith is confidence leading to action. Patience Certainly involves faith leading to action, but it includes having faith when conditions are less than ideal. The King James Version translates this word, patience, long-suffering. You know why? Because being patient often means being willing to suffer long. The promises of God belong to those who believe and who endure even under hardship to the end. When a spouse dies. When government changes the rules. When we lose a job. When someone takes advantage of us because we are a Christian. When we are routinely mocked or misunderstood for faithfulness to Christ. We keep living for Jesus knowing that those who trust Him and patiently wait for His glorious return will surely receive their promised inheritance. Do you see that word inherit in verse 12? Did you know we have an inheritance on the way? It is reserved in the heavens, it is secured by the blood of Christ. What an amazing inheritance we have. Ephesians 1.18 says it's glorious. Hebrews 9.15 says it's eternal. It is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven. It's kept secure for us until the day of salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. It's an inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1.12 The Lord will give us the reward of inheritance. Colossians 3.24 The Christian inherits everlasting life. Matthew nineteen twenty. Salvation, Hebrews 1.14. And the forever kingdom, Matthew 25.34, in which we will be joint heirs with Christ in relation to the entirety of creation, Romans 8.17-21. Where will this be? In the new heavens and in the new earth where Christ himself will make all things new, Revelation 21, verse 1 and 5. We have a sure hope of an inheritance through the blood of Christ our King. To stay in the race, to stay in the race means when the storms of life come, we do not look at the waves, but we look to the Savior. Assurance comes not from what we do, but from what Christ has done, and it belongs to those who take the long view in life. I don't know what you're facing right now, but Jesus does, and it does not alter The inheritance that he promises to those who faithfully and patiently endure to the end. Christ is enough. And we look for his return. Even in the storm, even in the darkest of days. And you know what? We need examples. We need examples to know what this looks like. Which is why the author introduces to us in verse 13, Abraham. Now, this is one example of faith, and it's a preview of coming attractions. I love how the author of Hebrews structures his book, because when we get to chapter 11, we're going to get to the famous hall of faith chapter, where we get just example after example after example. But right now, he's giving us a little teaser, a little appetizer, right? Let, let's consider Abraham and the faith and patience of Abraham. And, and as we do that, what he's going to show us in this final point, is that we must run from self-reliance and rely upon the promise of God fulfilled in Christ, our forever high priest. Now, I want to I take a brief time out for, for just a moment in the flow of this argument and point out something pretty neat. We, we've been talking about the fact that Jesus is the high priest who's greater than all the, the, Le, the Levitical priests, Right? That's the argument he's been making. And then he says, I don't think you're going to understand my argument, so I've got to take time out. I'm going to give you some warnings. Then I'm going to give you some assurance. And then we get to verse 20. He reintroduces Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, he's going to talk even more about Jesus being this great high priest who's better than all the Levitical high priests. Which, When did they come about? They came about under Moses at the covenant at Sinai. So look at what the author's doing. He's like, if you think, if you think for a moment you can run back to the New Testament and figure out a way to do away with your need for Jesus, you're crazy. And to prove that you're crazy, I'm going to go back not to Moses, but to Abraham, who was long before Moses, and I'm going to show you that salvation has always come through faith and patience in the promised Son of God. God gave promises to Abraham that he obtained, not through a sacrificial system, but by faith and patience in God's provision of a promised son. Abraham believed God, even when it seemed impossible for God to keep his promise, because he had to have a son, and Abraham was old. He had a son when he was 100 years old. Through faith and patient waiting, verse 15 tells us, Abraham obtained that promise. He held Isaac in his arms. When God asked Abraham to leave his homeland, to go to a land that God would show him, Abraham went. When God promised a son who would one day be the source of blessing to every family on the planet, Abraham believed God and he patiently Waited, God. I'm sixty. God. I'm seventy. Uh, God. I'm eighty. Still waiting. He kept waiting. And when he was a hundred, Isaac came. Schreiner says this: though there were ups and downs in his life, was Abraham perfect? No, he wasn't perfect. He lied about who Sarah was twice. You know what he did with Hagar to try to help God along? God, I believe you, but maybe you need a little help. Right? We've all tried to help God out, haven't we? Take God's will into our own and just, you know, God, I think this plan for my life would be great. I'm tired of waiting for this to work out over here. You haven't given me release yet, but, you know, I'm just going to help you out, God. Abraham wasn't perfect, but he did believe the promise of God and he did keep Waiting, and it is in that respect that Abraham is our example. That if we believe God and we believe God's promised son, and we wait on the inheritance that comes from Him, that we, like Abraham, can be assured that we are part of the family of God. Why did? Why in the world did Abraham believe God? Because it was God making the promise. And it was God swearing by himself that he would keep it. Now, by the way, God didn't need to do this. God didn't need to take an oath. He didn't need to swear by himself because it is, verse 18, impossible for God to lie. I praise God for that. There's nothing else in this world you can bank your life on other than the word of God. But he took an oath anyway. God did. Why? For our benefit, the text says, the oath signifies that God's promise cannot be changed. That's what the author means by two unchangeable things in verse 18. The first unchangeable thing is God's promise. The second unchangeable thing is God's oath. So God made a promise and then he made a promise not to change the promise. He secured it or interposed it or guaranteed it with an oath. So here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's arguing from lesser to greater. If you generally accept as truth... The testimony of a man who says, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. If you generally accept that argument, then how much more should you be confident in God who promises to deliver us to life everlasting and secures it, not by swearing on somebody greater than him, because there's nobody greater than him, but he swears on his own that he will keep his promise. You can take it to the bank You can be assured of salvation because God is the one who saves and God does not lie. God made a promise. He promised not to break the promise. God is not Lucy. He will not move the football. God is God. And He has promised His blessings come through a promised Son. Why? Do you see it in verse 18? Verse 18 is the key verse. So that we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. Yes, we've been warned. But now in verse 18, he's saying, I want you to have strong encouragement. To take hold of the hope set before us. To take refuge means to flee. It means to run. Did you know to be rescued by God, you've got to first run away from something? You've got to run away from self-reliance. You've got to run away from the false saviors that this world holds out for us that will never deliver you to the inheritance that God desires that you would have. Our inheritance and our hope comes not from the city of man, but in the city of God. It doesn't come from Babylon. It comes from Jerusalem, the greater Jerusalem, that heavenly city and the gathering of saints that's going to break break into this world when Christ returns. Our hope is not in this material world. It is heavenly and Christ is bringing it. And we've got to flee the fake hope that this world holds out and run to Jesus to have any hope at all. In Christ alone we have hope. We stand upon the promise of God and its sure fulfillment in Jesus. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand sand. Only the promised, crucified, risen, reigning, spotless lamb and son of God can take away the sin that separates you from the love of God. Only in Jesus can you be God's beloved. While God repeated his promise to Abraham many times, going all the way back to chapter 12 of Genesis, it was immediately after God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, that in that same chapter, Genesis 22, he swears by himself that he was going to keep his promise to Abraham. Can you imagine? 65, 75, 85, 95, still waiting, God, 100, I'm holding Isaac. Next thing I know, once Isaac has made it through toddlerhood and we've had our Little party that he's been weaned, praise Jesus. And now he's able to dialogue with his father. We know this because they have a conversation as they're on their way up to the mountain. God says, You know, it's time to take Isaac, your one and only son, your beloved, take him up the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham goes. He takes Isaac on a three-day journey to the mountain. He prepares to sacrifice his only beloved son, believing that if God gave him a son at a hundred, that he would raise his son from the dead if necessary to keep his promise. How do we know that? Because Abraham says, when Isaac says, Daddy, what in the world is going on? Abraham looks at Isaac and says, We will come back and we will worship together. But we know how the story goes. God did not require Isaac's blood for our sins. He had a better son yet to come. God stopped the sacrifice so that it would be a sign of greater things to come, a better sacrifice through a better son, who's the fulfillment of God's promise to bring blessing through a son. God did not pour out his righteous fury against sin on Isaac. He poured it out on Jesus, the son of God and the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the son that Abraham was hoping for, and Jesus has come. And all who believe in this Son and wait for His blessings that come in Him have confidence in this world that we will reign with Jesus in the world to come. Church, the assurance of salvation belongs to those who trust in and wait for Jesus, the promised, crucified, raised, ascended, and soon returning Son. This is why in verses 19 and 20, very quickly, Hebrews moves from the hope that we have By way of God's promises in His Word, to the hope that we have by way of Jesus who fulfills God's promise Word. Did you know that Jesus is hope? He's hope personified. Jesus is God keeping His promise, Jesus is the one who has given His blood the blood that God requires for sins to be forgiven. So in an uncertain world, when our circumstances lie to us every day and tell us that God won't keep his promise, in an uncertain world, Jesus is sure hope. In a fickle world, he is steadfast. When our circumstances, doubts, depression, anxieties, and despair keep saying to us, you will fall short, the blood of Jesus Signs the, God, the promises of God and says that he will not fail. Jesus is the anchor, sure and steady, for our souls. We have this confidence, not because of what we've done, but because Jesus did not just die for us. He rose on the third day, entered heaven, where he right now serves as high Priest praying for us, not on the basis of our deeds, but on the basis of his perfect sacrifice. When you are in Christ, when we are in Christ, our failures are overwhelmed by the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus gives us a living hope, a supernatural hope, a hope that, do you see it in verse 19? Enters within the veil. Jesus has entered the very presence of God, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, not in a church building. He is in the heavenly, serving as your perfect forever high priest, even right now, where he pleads his blood on your behalf. He is the forerunner, verse 20. Did you know God's not asking you to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done on your behalf? Jesus faced the cross with confidence in the promises of God. He has proven that there is resurrection on the other side of death for those who believe in God. So this morning, as we come to the table and as the deacons prepare to serve the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you, church, that we can have assurance because Christ is the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended King of kings and Lord of lords. And what then, what must we do? We patiently wait For him, we trust in him and his sacrifice that we may live convinced in this life of better things to come. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the bread and the crushed fruit of the vine that remind us of your body, which was broken for sinners, and of your blood that was shed because the blood of bulls and goats and calves could not cleanse our conscience it could not change the root of our lives only the blood of the spotless sinless son and lamb of God could take away the sin of the world and so today God we pray that as as we enter into this special time God that you would remind us that we need more than to just think about Jesus we need to have Jesus totally overwhelming and our lives. God, that we need to be consumed with Christ and his promise and the inheritance yet to come because of his faithfulness, because of his high priesthood. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.